Welcome to you all this morning. All right, great. Thanks. This morning we are going to be talking, when I say we, I mean me, I'm going to be talking mostly about this thing of uh, discipleship, but I've broken it down into a couple of different parts. Discipleship, you know we were called to make disciples. Does anyone know that? When Jesus was just about to go and be with his Father and, and ascend into heaven, he left us with an instruction which we call the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, in a nutshell, was Jesus saying, "Here, you know my mission while I was on earth, leading people to the Father, showing them the Father, teaching them about the Father. You know everything that I do? Well, now that's on you. And so that was the Great Commission. And so before he left, he said to us, go into all the world, make disciples. Now that word is not often used in today's language. It would have been very common back then, but for us today, someone making a disciple, it's only really used in church circles. Um, And so I want to just speak about that a little bit. And there's a couple of parts to being a disciple. There's more than two, but I've chosen two just for the purposes of this morning um, to make my point. Jesus calls us to make disciples. Now there's the, the two elements of that. One is this, knowing about God. It is good to know about God. It is good for us to get teaching. It's good for us to, that thing we're doing on Sunday night next week from 6 o'clock, which we're calling Foundations, what that is is biblical teaching. It's just solid doctrine. You want to know what we stand for as a church? You want to know what it means to be a Christ follower? You want to know how you live your life? Uh, Well, we can do that, and we can teach, and it's good for you to know about God. And the other element of discipleship, excuse me, is knowing God. So it's not just about knowing about God. It's knowing God himself. And I want to say this because this separates us a little bit from some other denominations and some other religions, is that the purpose in them is to know all about God. But to have a relationship with God is not something that is common to most religions and even, unfortunately, some denominations of Christianity. That just is not a factor. You just need to know about him. You just need to know how to do the Christian thing, how to walk the walk. You just need to know to say the right things and to do the right things and to not do the wrong things, and then that's it. You know about God, and that is, it constitutes almost all of your Christian walk. Well, for us, it's a little bit different. Knowing God personally is a privilege that we get to have, and which I feel we often take for granted. We get to know God personally. This is the thing that's been kind of keeping me awake at night, if I can say that. And it's just that the church is good at helping you to know about God. The church is great at telling you how to govern and manage your finances in a biblical way. We can look at Scripture and tell you the wise ways to raise children. We can teach you about sexuality and what the Bible teaches about sexuality. We can teach you about marriage. All those things are fantastic because you learn about God. And we as a church in general are good at that. 
where we sometimes find ourselves lacking is teaching people how to know God, how to have that and build that relationship. And what happens then is we create a church full of people who are dependent on leaders to feed them. That's not the kind of church we want to create, certainly not here. We don't believe in a clergy, laity way of doing church. What I mean by that, for those of you who don't understand, is there's the man of God, in this case me. I don't like to brag, but here I am. I'm just kidding. There's the man of God, and then there's the people. And the people need the man of God to tell the people what God is saying to the people. Um, that, is, that is a style and a way of doing church, but it's not a helpful way. There's a well-known phrase, which I'm sure you know. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Now, that very much applies in our circumstance. We can feed you just a little bit on a Sunday, just enough to keep you full until next Sunday. Or we can teach you how to fish. You can come to us and say, I need, I need help with this problem. And we can say, all right, and, and I can feed you, and I can tell you what I think God is saying in your situation. Or we can teach you to seek God in your situation. And that is where we want to go as a church. We need people who can seek God for themselves because we get to do that. We're not part of a tradition that says the man of God must seek God for you. We are part of the privileged that get to say we, we can have a relationship with God. We can hear from Him ourselves. We can walk with Him. We can talk with Him. We can have relationship with Him. When we read the Word of God, it can mean something. It can be alive and dynamic. When we spend time with Him, it's not just a chore. It's something that we get to do. And we want to teach the people in this church how to fish. We don't just want to feed people all the time. So, making disciples of people doesn't mean feeding their needs, but teaching them how to feed themselves, to hear and obey the voice of God for themselves. We never want to get to a place where the, the author of Hebrews wrote this about a church, about Christians. Let me put it up here. <clears throat> and what he's saying, let me read it to you first. He says, you've been believers so long that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the ba basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what's right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between wrong and right. And he's looking at the church and he's saying, you've been in the building for so long. You've been in here for years and you still need to be fed all the time. You can't feed yourself. You're like a baby. It's like milk. Now, I'm not saying that about you guys. That's what he was saying about the church he was speaking to. But the problem with the way that we do ministry in creating this mentality of you need to come here to be fed every week is we create people who are dependent on leaders for their milk every week. And that is not a healthy place to be. I'm not saying don't come to church next week. <laughs> come to church next week. Come to the 8 o'clock service for a change. It might be fun. It's possible to know all about someone and to not know them. I mentioned earlier that Sarah loves her fig jam. 
a lot of people, yeah, people came up to me afterwards and like, how can you not like fig jam? Um, I like the jam of the common people, okay? I love apricot jam. That's my jam. That's what I like. <laughs> but Sarah likes fig jam. So when it's scones or toast or whatever, it's fig jam. I know that on toast, she likes to put cheese on top of the jam. I know that Davi likes to put bananas and syrup on top of toast. You know, I can know everything about her. I know how she, how she sleeps. I know which side of the pillow she likes to use. I know, what, you know how long she showers for. I know everything about her, but it's possible to know everything about someone and to not know them. Did you know that? It's possible for you, even in a marriage, to know everything. And you can ask me anything, and I'll probably get it right. But sometimes there are days when we are just not on the same page, when we just do not know what each other is thinking. We don't know what God's speaking to us about. We don't know how we've, uh, what we've planned for the next few months. We don't know um, what we're thinking about or, or what we're dreaming about or what's challenged us or been difficult. Because of the busyness of life and us getting on with the things we need to get on with, we know everything about each other. <clears throat> but for those moments, we don't seem to know each other. We don't seem to be on the same page. And it can be like that with God as well, that you can know so much about Him You can have gone to Sunday school or kids' church. You can have come to church on a Sunday. You can even be in a connect group. You can do your own Bible study, and you can know so much about God, but it's possible for you to be out of relationship. It's possible for you to be on a different page to God himself, where you just, you know. You can quote a scripture, but if you got into a room by yourself, you wouldn't know what to do. You wouldn't know who to speak to. You wouldn't know how to, how to even approach God because you know so much about Him, but we don't know Him. And that's what I want to address more than anything this morning because what that comes out of is a, is a false understanding of who God is. God isn't someone to be tacked onto your life. When Jesus called Peter, Jesus saw him fishing. He went out, probably on the shore, saw him. I think I might even have a picture. That's the photo. And, um, and he was there on the shore, and he saw Peter, and Peter was, was there, and he was fishing, and he was doing his thing. And, uh, and Jesus didn't say, that looks amazing. Do you mind if I join you? Can I get in your boat? Teach me something. How do I do the sails? What do I do when the net gets full? How, like, what, what now? Let's learn about this fishing thing. Because fishing is your dream. It's your life. It's your passion. It's your income. It's everything for your family. I want to really join in with that thing. Let's do fishing together. Was it like that? It wasn't like that. Jesus walked up, and, up to Peter and he said, Hey, Peter, come follow me. And what did Peter do? Done. He followed Jesus. Jesus didn't follow Peter. But the problem with a lot of our lives and the way we run our lives is that it's like, hey, Jesus, I'm on this mission. Do you mind joining me? You can hop in the passenger seat of my car. Is that okay? You can come with me because I'm going to a very cool place. I want to be a lawyer. I'm going to make money. I'm going to have a family. Check out my fence. It's going to be white and picket. It's just going to be beautiful. Um, Come with me. Jesus, I've got this incredible plan. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. I see Jesus saying, hey, drop what you've got and come follow me. Because trust me, I put you together and I know what you created for. 
Walk with me and you're going to discover what that is. And Peter dropped everything and so did the others that Jesus called. We need to be a church that knows the voice of our God and is experiencing that full and abundant life that John speaks about in John 10.10. And he says that Jesus came to give us life, an abundant life. But here's the thing. We won't hear his voice if we don't know him. We won't hear his voice if we don't know him. The way you get to know someone is through relationship, right? That's the only way. There isn't a shortcut to getting to know someone personally other than through relationship. And that's the absolute key. It's the starting point to knowing him. And like every relationship that we have on this planet, it requires a couple of things. Intimacy an effort or a couple of ingredients in order to grow and develop a relationship. Intimacy and effort. It's scary, but it's possible to be a Christian and not be in a relationship with God. Isn't that weird? You can have at one stage said, I want to serve God. I want to walk with Him. I want a life with Him. I don't know where I'm going. I've tried everything my way. I want to put my trust in Him and let's just see where this goes. And then that's it. So you've made that decision and you are kind of serving God. You kind of put your trust and your faith in God but there's no relationship there whatsoever. It is possible but it's not ideal. I think so easily we get to a place where we put our relationship with God in a, into a formula. And I think that's what I'm I'm dead set against, but hear this. I'm not set against quiet times as they are traditionally known. I'm not set against spending a, a certain time of your day reading the Word or praying or, or whatever it might be. I'm not at all against those things. My problem is with the motivation of those things. You see, we can do the same thing with a different motivation and get a different result. So we can come into a room and say, I need to do this because I know if I have my quiet time, things are going to go okay for me. I know if I do this, I'm not going to feel guilty. I know if I do this, I'm putting building blocks into my relationship with God because you know God's up there going, how many times did you read the Bible? Okay, that wasn't too bad this week. Okay, and how many times did you share about me with someone else? Terrible, terrible. Um, Because actually we don't say it, but that's the way that we live often our relationship out. And it's God sitting up there going, whoa, you haven't spoken to me for weeks. Now you want to come and you want to sing worship to me and lift your hands and hallelujah. No, my friend, it doesn't work like that. That's the way we think about God because we understand him in a false way. It's a formula. If I come to church, the rest of my week will be blessed. If I spend that morning with him, my whole day is going to be secure and lovely and I'm going to have that relationship. It's going to be great. So it's a motivation thing. You see, with the wrong motivation, it's the same as me spending time with Sarah. I know quality time is important to Sarah. So what I'm going to do is when I get home, I'm just going to sit in the room as her, same room. And I'm going to be there for like half an hour because that's a good time to be with Sarah. And then I'm going to walk out the room. And the next day, I'm going to go back into the room and I'm going to sit there again. I'm just going to count it off like 30 minutes. Cool. All right. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to walk out because I know she needs quality time. Isn't it like that? 
Isn't it like that? Oh, I need to read this. I need to spend this time in the Word of God today. Otherwise, my relationship with, with Him is nowhere. I don't know what to do then. It's going to suffer. And so we just put in the time, and then that equals something. That kind of formula is not a helpful kind of formula. That's not a relationship. That's clocking in and out of work. Relationship is not a slot in your day. Relationship with God is your day. That's the mindset we need to change. I want to read a story that comes out of this book. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to get it. What's So Amazing About Grace? It's a fantastic book by a guy named Philip, y- Philip Yancey. almost said a girl. A guy named Philip Yancey. And uh, you can check that out. But I'm going to read a story from it. Let me not spoil it. There's some pictures that will come up as I walk it through. It's not a short story, so settle in. Just get comfortable, breathe. If you've got a cough, now's the time to do it. Just, there you go. <clears throat> okay, everyone comfortable, slouching in your chair. Okay. But I want to encourage you to hear everything in this. All right, let's go. Start there. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in graphic detail the gangs, drugs, and violence in downtown Detroit, she thinks that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe. Florida, maybe. But not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? By now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the building department at the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. 
She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightened city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers she's piled on top of her coat. Something jolts a synapse in her memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees blossom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And to, during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back, back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. <clears throat> 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick from, off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. And not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters, and great uncles and aunts, and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through the tears and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. And so it is with God's amazing grace. But what's so amazing about it anyway? Ask people what they must do to return to God. And most will say, be good. Jesus' stories contradict that answer. All we must do is cry help. God welcomes home anyone who will have him, and in fact has made the first move already. That's what's so amazing about grace.
It's a long story, but it illustrates a critical point. The Father heart of God. It's one of the most powerful stories Jesus ever told. And it may not seem that way right now. To some of you it may. But when Jesus told this story, it was completely radical. It was, it was unthinkable, actually, that he could even speak about God in that way. Because up to that point, the religious people of that day, they saw God as someone upstairs with a checklist. They saw God as someone who was seeing how many rules they could keep and which ones they broke and would punish them for all of the broken ones and would reward them for all of the good ones. And, and they had to walk a very, very narrow line not to get outside of the will of God. Oh, I've done this wrong. Oh, let me do this. And, and you've got to correct all the sins and all the difficult things that you did. And so for them, this concept of God being a loving father, being someone who you could trust and who would actually be excited to see you was mind-blowing. And actually, they didn't like it. Um, because guess what? It's easier to follow rules sometimes than it is to follow relationship. And so they battled with that, and it was a radical thing uh, that God is on our side. He's not angry with us. He's for us and not against us. The story of the prodigal son is not very much about the son. It's very much about the father. And this is a magnificent picture of God's love for us as undeserving as we are. <clears throat> so in the original story, which many of you have read or heard, the son is, I mean, the father is waiting. And you kind of get this picture of him just like leaning over his garden fence, like waiting every day, staring for weeks and then for months and then for years, but never losing hope, always glancing over the fence looking for his son. And when he eventually sees him, the Bible says he had deep compassion for him because it was the day he had been dreaming about for years. It's the day he had pictured and imagined for so long, now coming to be. He ran to meet him, which was not the done thing. That was the undone thing. No one over the age of 30 would be caught running because that is undignified. So, But he was this old man waiting, and he wasn't worried about what people thought about him. He was going to run. This was the day he was waiting for. And then he hugged him, even though he smelt like pig. And he kissed him earnestly, it says in the Greek. This was a father who was happy to see his son. You can understand why the religious leaders of that day were not happy with the story. How can you say God is like that? We know what God is like. God gave us the Ten Commandments. God wants us to stay in this line. If we step out of it in any way whatsoever, we will be punished. So when, they took, when Jesus himself spoke about God like this, mind-blowing. Something I believe is that many theological matters can be sorted out if you bring things into the understanding of a family or a relationship. Those things that are complicated suddenly become clearer. And um, it's not about rules, but relationship with our Father. You see, our Christianity, you can choose to see it as a rule thing. You can choose to see it as a do and don't do thing. Or you can choose to see it as a relationship like in a normal family with a dad and his child. Did you know that God cared so deeply about you? 
Did you know that you mattered to God so much that Jesus would even tell the story to highlight what you mean to God? I don't know if you've thought about yourself like that. This isn't a hypothetical thing. This is you when you go home and you're lying in your bed and God is just excited to see you and he's just loving being with you. I do that every night. I lie with my girls and I lie with them until Kate falls asleep and until I'm finished lying with Sasha. She doesn't fall asleep so easily. And, um, and I lie there and I look at them and I think, I love you. You're amazing. I'll do anything for you. There's not, you know, I, don't, I don't say these things, but I'm thinking it when I'm lying with them or when I'm looking at them. And I just think, you know, you girls are amazing and you're incredible. And, I, and it's not because I'm amazing that I think these things. That's just a normal parental thing to do. But if, if how I'm so flawed and sinful and lame and, and then you get God, I mean, how much more when he looks at us does he think, oh, I love you. I love you. You're amazing. I made you. I mean, look at this. Look at you. You're so precious and incredible. And like, I just love you. That's, you see, that's a different picture. That's the picture we, st- we need to start with in our hearts and in our minds if we want to know God. Because if you start with a rule, a rule ordering God, you've already got the wrong picture. Then knowing God has a whole different meaning and experience for you. But if you start off your walk and your relationship with God knowing that He actually is on your side, that He loves you, that He cares for you, that He looks at you with those silly parent eyes that just says, I love you. That's God looking at you. When I was thinking about this, I thought about people who, you know, the idea of God being a father isn't a pleasant image for everyone. We have to be honest with the world we're living in. It's not that everyone had fantastic parents. And I think even parents that that do well get it wrong half the time. But for some people to say God loves you like a father doesn't make you think of happy things. Because fathers here can be neglectful, they can be abusive, they can be hurtful, they can be insensitive. We know all those things. But God is a perfect father. He's loving, he's attentive, he's compassionate, he's kind, he's patient. We can trust him. So maybe it is difficult for you because of your idea of a father. But let me say this, whether you feel it or not, God loves you. And if that's all you hear today, then that's fine. Because that is critically important. If we want to get out of this mode and method of being fed all the time, I need someone to feed me so that my relationship with God looks like something. If we're going to get out of that, then we need to understand God loves us. He loves you. He wants that with you. He wants to walk and talk with you. And so if you've been serving God, maybe even for days, weeks, months, maybe many, many years, all this is is an awakening for you to say, remember how God sees you. We don't belong to that kind of tradition that says that God is up there, judgmental, difficult, irritable, grumpy, with a stick or a knopkiri, just waiting. We don't, we don't believe that. It is His will that none should perish. It is God's will that no one slips through the cracks. And so a message like this 
is going to fall in two people's laps here. It's going to be in people that are already serving God, but just want that deeper relationship, just want to understand again how much Jesus loves them. And it's going to be falling on other people who have never started that relationship with God. And maybe you've never heard or understood how much God does love you. Maybe you've heard that before and people have said, yeah, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. But now you can see it. In the words of Jesus himself, who said those, that amazing story about the prodigal son, showing the father heart of God, and he's waiting. And he's waiting for you. It says in John 3.16, and we know this, For God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, his one and only son. God only has one begotten son. He only had one natural son, which was Jesus. But thankfully, the story didn't end there. And Paul puts it so beautifully in his letter to the Romans where he says, You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. We're not just people who, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Master, yes, yes, Master, yes, Sir. We're not like that with God. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Isn't that awesome? God has one begotten son, but he has a whole stack of adopted children. Kids that he looks at and just goes, you're, you're awesome. I like you. I did a good thing when I made you. Maybe your parents didn't plan it that well but I planned it just right, and you are awesome. That's how God sees you. Abba, you know that word there? It's not just a bad rock band. It's the most intimate form of the word father. This, you see, Jesus chose his words incredibly carefully. He didn't just spout things out. He said, we can call him Abba, Father. This was Paul speaking, but saying you can call him dad that would have freaked a lot of people out even nowadays it, it, it's, it takes a little bit of time to get used to something like that but to understand that you can call God dad that's what he's saying because you've, you're no longer a slave you're not yes sir, yes master, three bags full you're yes dad awesome and you know the relationship that broke with Adam and Eve you remember what it says that Adam used to walk in the cool of the day with God. I mean, good grief. How awesome is that? He would just walk and talk with his creator every day. And that thing broke. And from that day until this day, God is setting that relationship right with people. He made the way. He came himself and he died the death that we all should have died. And he lived the life we should have lived. He made the way for that to be possible so that we could do the same thing that Adam did and walk and talk with God each and every day. Is that awesome? It's pretty exciting. I'm excited. So we're going to pray. And uh, I'm not going to ask for you to, to let me know if this applies to you or anything. You know, if you're following God, it all works in cycles, these things, cycles and seasons. And... Uh, Sometimes your relationship with God is dynamic and it's fresh and it's every day and you walk and talk. And sometimes, like any relationship, it just gets a little old and you kind of take things for granted and you forget certain things. And hopefully, if nothing else, this morning, for those of you who are 
already Christians, you've put your faith in Christ, this is just a, a, a rethinking for you, just to say, man, I forgot how much God actually loves me. I'm so glad to be reminded that it's not about following rules. It's just about me and God. It's about me and Dad just doing life together.